0: Let's thank T.J. for playing for us this morning. Thank you so much. And don't ever cut your hair, man. Don't ever cut your hair. Um, all right, so uh, we're continuing. This is part two of a series we started last week um, called uh, Modern Day Myths. And we're basing this on a book called This Is Our Time, Everyday Myths in Light of the Gospel. And I showed you a picture of this book. If you want to read it over the summer, so you guys have plenty of summer um, reading, you know, time and whatnot. Um, It's a great book. And uh, we're basing this series on this book. And this series is, um, or this book is based on the idea that all of us live by these myths. And we adopt these myths that we're often unaware of. And so what is a myth? A myth is a big overarching story that we live by as we try to answer life's big questions. We talked last week about how those questions could range from um, what's the point of life, to why are we here, uh, how do we find happiness. These are the questions we're trying to answer as we walk through life, and we often adopt these myths as we try to answer these questions um, and live our lives. So each talk's going to have three movements. We discussed this last week. Uh, the first movement's going to be the longing. And we talked about how uh, behind these myths, there are these um, deep longings or desires. And often they are God-given. Longings. They're not bad necessarily, so they're, 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 they're there, but uh, oftentimes they're God-given longings that we have. And our job as believers is going to be to help people to see the deep longings behind what they do. So we're discussing that as well this series. Then we're going to talk about the lie. And so while there are some deep longings that we all have deep down, there are also some lies that we adopt um, as we try to wrestle with these longings that we have And uh, so the job of a Christian is going to be to expose the lies behind these myths, but then also point people to the light of the gospel. So you're going to also have the movement of the light in every talk that you hear throughout this series. So the light of the gospel is this good news about Jesus, and it doesn't just expose the lie, but um, it also answers the deep longings that people have as they try to think through these, um, these myths that they're living by. John Perkins said, uh, The job of an evangelist is to connect God's good news with people's deep yearnings. This is the mission of a Christian. Your job in the world is not just going to be to point out just the lie, but it's going to be to to tap into the deep longings of people that, that God has placed within them, even unbelievers, and show how the gospel, the light, is the answer to those deeper longings that they may have. So, um, I want you guys to discuss, before I give you my, our topic for today, I want you to discuss your first three questions at your tables. Go ahead and discuss questions one to three. All right. So, surprise surprise. So, our title for today is wait for it. It is shopping for happiness. All right? So, um So, how many of you guys said that you get just as excited about these small purchases as you do the big purchases? Raise your hand. Small purchases make almost well, a lot of decent number of you, all right? So, um so yeah, so we can uh we can find satisfaction in 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 purchases of all different types. So, uh when we buy new stuff, most of us just think we're shopping for just a product. Uh, but there's more to it than that. There's more going on behind the scenes than what you and I might think. Uh, so let's give an example. So you need a pair of jeans. So you don't go to just any store. You go to the right store, the store that is your store, that you know they're going to have just what you need for jeans. And um, you notice that we have these certain emotional attachments to certain brands Uh, you guys don't just go and get like just anything. You go for the thing that you think you can trust and you have certain brands you think you can trust. So take jeans, you go to your store, the right store. And, uh, once you're there, you don't just walk in and just pick any pair of jeans, do we? Uh, jeans had to be very, very specific. And so you look at all the choices you walk in and at least on the guy's side of a store, they usually have a huge wall of just like different kinds of jeans. And, uh, and if you're a lady, there's, like, you got to pick the, the right kind of waist. There's, like, the low rise, the mid rise, the high rise, whatever they call them. And then, then there's, like, the, the right cut. The cut is an issue, right? So you got to get straight cut. You got to get the boot cut, the wide leg, the relaxed fit, the loose fit, the skinnies. And which I don't understand this, but this, I think, has kind of been something a few years ago, but... There were some guys that were wearing, like, the girl jeans. Did you guys see that? Um, yeah, it was like they were, the guys were wearing the girl jeans, which I did not understand at all. Um, so there's guys wearing skinnies. And then there's also the right material. There's the right color. There's the right wash. There's the ripped or not ripped, right? There's all these different options. And, uh, and I learned something this week. Because um, right now, apparently, for girls, girls can buy what they call boyfriend jeans, and like you borrowed them from your boyfriend. That's the style that they are. And then they also have um girls can wear mom jeans like you borrowed them from your mom, which is just a weird concept because today it's today it's really cool to not be cool. And so they have mom jeans for people to wear. And listen, so you go you go into these stores and you, you pick like three, four or eight and you go to the dressing room. And then you find the one. There's always the one. And this is like getting married. My a pair of jeans is kind of like getting married. Because what will happen is you will go home and look at your old jeans and you will divorce them. Right? Um, you guys don't notice this, but I'm not wearing them today. But I have one pair of jeans that I like to wear. All right? And I wear them all the time. And you guys probably never noticed, but now you did. So, um... But uh, most of us have that one pair that is just your go-to pair of jeans. And uh, so you pick the right store, you pick the right style, the right cut, the right material, all for this one moment when you're walking out of the store. Hopefully you paid for them. And and you have this deep sense of, like, satisfaction. You might even call it happiness. Now, this plays out with purchases large and small, doesn't it? The same sort of psychological uh, feeling that you get when you buy something new. And uh, so when we shop, are we shopping for just a product or something a little bit more than that? I would say it's a little bit more than what you think maybe you're shopping for. Uh, In fact, companies who who make products understand this. They understand that if they're going to sell something to you, they've got to sell you more than just the material itself. They know, like advertisers know this. They know if they're going to sell to you, they hire, companies hire advertisers, marketers, because they want to connect to this deep longing that you have inside yourself. And they understand, they know it. These are not believers that think this is, these are secular humanistic people that just understand the human condition. So here is the longing that all of us have, I think, at the core is everyone desires newness. We all want it, we all desire it. And, uh, This is a longing. This is a God-given longing. This is God-given. Trevin Wax says this. He says, Advertising taps into our longing for wholeness, and shopping becomes the religious activity intended to satisfy our needs. Advertising is effective because one of the prevailing myths of our time is that salvation comes through accumulation. As we accumulate stuff... We find happiness or at least security. Every advertiser knows they have to do more than just talk about the product. You, you notice av- no ad is ever just, uh, let me just tell you about the uh, the, the goods of, of this pair of jeans. And they kind of walk you through a bullet point. That's not an advertisement. It's going to be somebody like at a party having fun. They're wearing a certain kind of material. Or they're drinking a certain drink. Or they've got... S- something in this environment, and there's a story they're creating to tap into this longing that you have for newness. This is what advertisers do. The story, their job is as an advertiser is to connect the product to a story. And the story always connects deeper than just your practical need to wear a pair of pants, right? They try to show you how the product's going to bring... This newness and wholeness and happiness. And you'll see it all over uh, marketing and advertising. The interesting thing is, this desire for newness is not a new thing. It's actually an old thing. And we see it in uh, Acts chapter 17. Look in your Bibles, Acts 17, verse uh, 19. The setting is that Paul is in Athens. He's in this place called the Eropagus. And he is preaching Jesus to the Athenians. And uh, look at Acts chapter 17, verse 19 to 21. And they took him, this is Paul, and they brought him to the Areopagus, saying, May we know what this new teaching is that you're presenting. For you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. Now, all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. So Paul is preaching Jesus in this public square area of Athens. And this is a place where ideas were exchanged. So the Greeks loved thought and ideas and dialogue and debate. So if you had a new idea or something you're pontificating, you could share it in this open square. It's open forum. And they would maybe approve. they may be disapprove. They would argue. They would debate. That was part of the Greek way. And so if someone had something new to say, they were all, there was already interest because it was just new. So Paul has this crowd, and so it says the, these people in this city would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. So the Greeks lived in a world that consumed ideas. You and I live in a world that um, consumes things and products. And so there's not much difference, I think, between the ancient world and today. Um, The interest in novelty is still the same. We still have this infatuation with newness, There's a guy who was a 5th century uh, uh, B.C. Greek politician. He said this about the Athenians. He said, you are the best people at being deceived by something new that is said. This politician understands the condition of the Greeks, that they will fall for anything just because it's it's new. So the Greeks love newness, and I think we love newness as well different form of that. And because of this deep longing that we're, um, that we have inside, I think we're, we're prone to fall to some, uh, for some lies. So here's the lie that we often fall to. New things will renew you. You may not make this connection, like as you're, you don't think about that as you're buying stuff. I know we don't think about that and readily admit that, but there's this lie we buy into, which is this new thing is going to renew me. It's going to make me different, make me feel different. And I think you and I fall for this lie almost every time we buy something, whether it's something large or small. This is the feeling you get, that feeling of satisfaction or, or happiness that you get whenever you walk out of the store or walk out of um, a showroom with that new car when you're 16 years old. Now, you might say, this is, this is crazy. Like, there's no way. I, I'm not trying to renew myself when I buy things. I'm just excited to get something new. It's it's just very simple. It's all it is. You're reading way too much into this, Dave. And what I would just tell you is, well, look at this quote by a, a fashion designer. She says this, I have always had more faith in fashion than in God. I believe the right clothes could make me perfect. I still do. I was driven by the belief that the right garment could save me. This is not a person who was once a fashion designer. Now she's a Christian and using words like salvation and saved. She's not a believer. And she's using words like, this garment could save me. It's astounding that she's making these connections, that she's not even a believer, using that kind of language in relation to clothing. Talking about God and faith and perfect and save in reference to clothing. An unbeliever making these kinds of connections. She understands what is going on inside of herself when she makes a purchase. And I think n- no one here, I would say, admits, we don't admit to looking for salvation, do we? When we're putting on clothing or buying something new. But she she's making these connections. Understanding what's happening in her as she... Um, searches for the perfect thing. So I think if we're honest, we long for this newness. And so we fall for the lie that new things are going to renew us in some way. So what you'll see happen is as we shop for happiness, what will often happen is you see how it leads to unhappiness because these things weren't meant to make us happy. I have this, uh, this book that I bought a while back. I haven't read all of it. I've read most of it, parts of it. I'm not sure how you can really even read the title of that or the, the subtitle. But it's called The Paradox of Choice, Why More is Less, How the Culture of Abundance Robs Us of Satisfaction. Again, not a believer. He's not a believer writing this. And here's what he's saying. The more choices that we have... You and I have this idea, especially here in the U.S., that the more choices we have, more choices leads to more happiness. He says the opposite is true. More choices leads to less happiness. And here's how he's worked this out. How many of you guys have been to a restaurant and the menu is like a book? Right? I think of uh, here in town, I think of BJ's Brewhouse up on the Loop, um, I think of Cheesecake Factory. Anyone been to Cheesecake Factory and seen that? Um, which, by the way, interesting, I was at the gym this past week, and there was a guy in the gym. This is the weirdest thing. And he—he he was actually pretty, pretty cut, and he had his shirt, he had like a Cheesecake Factory shirt on while he's working out in the gym, which is kind of an odd deal. And it wasn't like he just threw it on. Like he actually had, like the sleeves were cut off. Like, he intentionally, this is his workout shirt. I'm, like, thinking, is that, like, motivation for I get to have this later or something? Like, after I, I don't know what that was about. But, but Cheesecake Factory, you've got this menu like a book, right? And what happens for you and I is you go to the restaurants like this and you open it up. And anybody here get, you get order anxiety? You get that, don't you? Like, there's just too many choices and you're overwhelmed by all the choices. You can't decide what you want. Um, the server comes back and says, are you ready? And you're like, I'm only on chapter three. I'm sorry. I can't. Like, you, you can't decide what you want to get. And so they, they go away, and then you ask your friends, like, what are you getting? And they're like, well, I'm, I've narrowed it down to these eight things. And uh, you're like, I can't decide. And then so the server comes back, and you're like, I got these four I'm thinking about. Um, what do you think? And he tells you. So you get what he tells you to get. And then the food arrives at your table, And then there's the first bite, and there it is, extreme disappointment, because you should have gotten the other thing, right? And so there are times when you recognize, like, this, so many choices leads to dissatisfaction because there's always something you should have gotten. There's always something else you should have gotten that you know would have been better if you'd had that other thing. This is why I love restaurants, Um, like In-N-Out Burger because the menu looks like this, right? It is so simple. You don't walk out with, you don't have order anxiety. Like if you're in line with 20 people, you're not like, oh, I can't decide what I want to get. Like it's, you got like three choices, right? And it's like two hamburgers, a cheeseburger, just a hamburger. That's it. There's not many choices, because they've figured out what they do well, and they want to do it just really, really well. And you don't get distracted by all the different choices that you might have somewhere else. So what happens when you go to a place like this is you don't have this feeling of like, you know, I should have gotten the other thing. This is not really what I thought it was going to be. Like, you know what you're going to get, and that's why you're going into the place. And there's no anxiety, no stress, no regret, and less dissatisfaction. Because when you have too many choices, this leads to an expectation of 100% satisfaction. And I think you see this too many choices phenomenon play out, even with like silly things like medicine. So my wife uh, tells me to go to the store uh, because she has a headache and she wants me to get her some Tylenol. And um, this is simple, right? Getting Tylenol is simple, but not when the shelf looks like this, right? So you go in, and, and I'm having to make another phone call to find out, okay, so what kind do you want exactly? Because there's, there's like 20 different kinds and sizes and pill kinds and liquid and all kinds of choices. And so I come into this place because my wife has a headache And now I've got one because I'm looking at all this, having to figure out which one to get, right? And so you see choices um, in every way imaginable, especially where where you and I live because we live in the place where we say more freedom equals more choice, which means more happiness. This is how how we view things. And yet what you find, I think, is more choice equals less satisfaction because you think you should have always gotten the other thing if it doesn't meet your expectations. So the example is kind of silly, but I think we see this with anything that you and I buy. We see this this choice phenomenon happening. Uh, I want you to look at Ephesians chapter 4, verse 19. Ephesians 4, 19, where Paul um, says this. He says, Having lost all sensitivity, they have given themselves over to sensuality, with a continual lust for more. So one of the biggest signs of idolatry that you're going to find in yourself and that we see throughout history is when you find in yourself this insatiable desire for more. There's always more. There's always more. There's always more. And this is one of the, I think, biggest symptoms of idolatry, this lust for more. And about this passage, a guy named Richard Winter says this. He says, Paul is arguing, when we cut ourselves off from God, we look for our deepest fulfillment and meaning only in things God has made rather than in a relationship with him. It is the same mistake. It is the same sin that is committed over and over and over again, the sin of idolatry, which leads to this continual lust for more. Thinking you're going to be satisfied with every little thing you put in front of yourself, and then yet you find dissatisfaction, dissatisfaction, dissatisfaction. And this is a symptom of idolatry, I think. We put our faith in more, 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 we find joy less, less, and less. And so we've looked at this longing of, this desire, how you and I desire newness, and also the lie that new things are going to renew you. But I want to move to the light. I think you see it in this next part of the passage. Look at, look down at verses uh, 22 to 24. In the same passage, Paul goes on to say, he says, "...you were taught with regard to your former way of life to put off your old self, which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires." to be made new in the attitude of your minds and to put on the new self. Created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. We see this concept in Colossians and also in Ephesians. To put off the old self and to put on the new. And if you look at this text, he says, corrupted by its deceitful desires. So you're... Our old self, the flesh, we have to see our desires as deceitful. I think you and I have a hard time admitting that our desires are deceitful. At their core, they're deceitful. You and I have these longings that are God-given longings, but we buy into the lie as a result of those longings and begin to see the lie as truth. At the heart of our fleshly desires, there are lies that just abound. And we talked about what some of those were. We talked about how, in our culture, people say things like, you know, follow your heart. you got to follow your heart. And so Christians even adopt these expressions. Or, um, as long as you're okay, it's, it's good. Or as long as you're happy, it's good. Everything's okay as long as you're happy. And happiness is what drives us to say, drives our, how we see morality. So in this text, you see, as, you, as we put off the old self, we're, we're made new. You see it in this passage. As you put off the old self, we're made new. And newness takes place in these internal attitudes. You, you see what it, it's say, saying in the text. To be, made in the new, to, be, to be made new in the attitude of your minds. So this new attitude comes to play in, in your mind as you put on the new self. And so what's the point of, of this text? Why am I bringing this up in context of this, with this talk? I'm trying to help you understand that maybe this desire for new things is really just a desire to be made new. I'm trying to help you connect the dots here that as you, as you desire new things, maybe it's really linked to this deeper desire to be made new. And here's the really good news. That's what Jesus does. That's what Jesus does. One of the most moving passages, I think, in all of Scripture is Revelation chapter 21, verses 1 to 5. I love this text. The Apostle John, he writes these words. He says, he's seeing a vision of the future where everything is heading. I want you to keep in mind how many times you see the word new in this text. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the, from the throne saying, and true. So here is the light. The light is that God makes all things new. God makes all things new. And this is not just about you. He's going to make us new, but it's not just about you. You see in the text, it's a lot more than just you and I. It says he's making everything new. The whole world order that's That's crushed under the weight of sin is being made new. This includes us, but it's not just about us. When it comes to consumerism, you and I have this choice we have to make. We can keep buying the lie that new things are going to make you renewed or make you happy, or believe the truth that only God is the one that can make us new. So how do you reorient your life around that truth? I want to think of it in two terms, rejecting lies and embracing light. So a question you have to ask yourself, or the first point is is ask the right questions. How do you reject lies? How do you embrace light? It's about asking the right questions. So as you think about your life going forward, you're going to be evaluating your life based on things like, um, what are my grades, what are my accomplishments, what are my, what's on my resume, what are my potential uh, careers. Once you get into those careers, you're going to be asking yourself questions. You look at your life, how am I doing in my job? And you're going to be basing it on things like performance evaluations and salary and um, perks to the job. And you're going to evaluate yourself based on those Kinds of things. How do you measure success? Will be on your minds a lot over the next 10, 15, 20 years. But a better question that we have to ask is Am I becoming more and more Christ like? How are my relationships with people? How's my relationship with God? Am I growing in Christ likeness? You've got to measure success differently than how many of us have been taught. The second thing is commit to community. Committing to community is one of the the best ways for you to empty yourself of this drive towards consumerism. Here's how it works. Because we have been trained in our culture today because of advertising, marketing, products, profit. We have been trained to use something until it's no longer useful, and then we chuck it, and then we get something else. I mean, one of the craziest things, I mean, I love that we had a garage sale in here over the weekend. Um, if you guys could, how many of you guys were in here? Did you, anybody see the, the craziness in this building? It was insanity. Um, always blown away. And we can just say, hey, garage sale. And like all this stuff just shows up in this building. And we raised $50,000 for missions. It's amazing. And I praise God that people have lots of useless junk that they want to get rid of. And it goes to the nations. I love that. But the flip side of that is this. We are a nation of people who we use something. When it's no longer useful, we just we throw it away. We sell it at a garage sale. And um, we just pass things around. It's how it works here where we live. And what happens, here's how it affects your community. Because many of us, you will come into a place and you will use the church like a product. And you'll use it until it's no longer useful for you. And you'll just set it aside, maybe go somewhere else, or maybe go and, and throw away the whole thing, the whole idea. This is why you committing in community is one of the best ways to empty yourself of this drive towards consumerism. Because when you commit in community... And you realize that the church is a people. And the people in your life should not be expendable. We should not be expendable to each other. So often the church becomes, you know, the, the pastors are just people that we, you know, pay to keep us happy. Or the programs are um, ways to meet our own needs. And the church is all about us. And the church needs to be about Jesus and his glory and his mission and his kingdom. That's what the church is about. And then lastly, instead of getting, embrace giving. Notice that whenever we're not just talking about, okay, just stop accumulating. Just stop trying to get stuff. Stop trying to see stuff as your ticket to happiness. We're not. It's not just about that. But when you notice whenever you are in this relationship with Jesus, your relationship to stuff changes. Your walk with Jesus changes your relationship to stuff. So you embrace giving. The last couple of uh, weeks, um, I've had two people in our church, older women who don't have a lot of money, have approached me to ask questions like, hey, I've got some extra money. Um, is there someone in need that I can give to? And I'm, I'm trying to go find, uh, and some of you guys are like, meh, you know. But I'm trying to think through, like, what are some ways, where's that place I can direct her, direct them as they want to give? Because here's what happens. Whenever you recognize the generosity that's given to us in the gospel, Like, you and I become more generous. This is how the gospel changes you in your relationship to stuff. It reorients you. And you become generous, not just someone who says, okay, I'll stop getting. No, you start giving. And you'll see how the gospel changes your heart as it relates to the stuff that we so often partake of. I want you guys to go ahead and finish up with your last few questions at your tables.